Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I will continue my look at Charles W. Chestnut's novel on passing and the color line, The House Behind the Cedars. This short novel zeroes in on the color line with relentless focus. Chestnut has proven in his other works that he can be very thematically complex and overlapping But in The House Behind the Cedars, he has a very clear argument, and that is that the most damaging legacy of slavery is the color line, and that the color line is cruel, arbitrary, and irrational, and causes immense amounts of sorrow and suffering across both sides of the color line, but particularly among black people. But there's more, and we go into this novel thinking it's about the color line, and that's mostly what we get. But by the end of the novel, we find that Chestnut really has another agenda as well. And this is an agenda that speaks to us in the contemporary era, maybe even more strongly than the narrative about the about the color line in passing. And that is, he ended up writing a novel which is about sexual harassment. The plot of this novel centers on the failed courtship of Rena Walton to a white man named George Trione. To a lesser degree, the story tells of Reno's brother, John Warwick, but this is really just a device to set up Rena's situation. The heart of the story is Rena trying and failing to pass as a white woman and then the consequences of her short-lived experiment living as a white woman. Her failure is directly tied to her heritage, her past, her family, and her personal connections. And in contrast, her brother's success at passing is due to him breaking the bonds of family, trying to break the bonds of heritage and leaving the world of his youth behind. She failed where her brother succeeded, that is, in making this firm break with the past. In the first half of the novel, we learn that John Warwick has returned to his hometown of Patesville in North Carolina. He visits his mother. Now, in the first half of the novel, it is clear that this novel is about race, but the racial background of our characters is only alluded to. It's only discussed in euphemisms and hinted at. George's mother, we learn later on, is black. And while she's fairly light-skinned, in the language at the time, she would have been called a quadroon or a mulatto, depending on the state and the legal situation of the states. In North Carolina, however, she was black and she could not pass. She could not pass. Um, But her children could, and her children with her, she was the mistress of of a rich white man and they had two children. So she was never married, so they're also illegitimate children. But both children are very light-skinned, and outside of their hometown, where everyone knows their story, they can pass as white. And people within the town even talked about the girl, Rena, and what a shame it was that she had to grow, you know, live as a black woman. Now, John left to go live as John, John Warwick, as a white man. He decides to help his sister do the same, make the same decision, and takes her with him to South Carolina, where racial laws are a bit more flexible on the color line. It's very difficult for her to leave her mother and her good friend Frank, but she goes anyways. And in South Carolina, Rena, John's sister now living as Rowena, meets a man named George Tyrone at a tournament where she was named the Queen of Love and Beauty. She enters into a courtship with him. The siblings eventually 
as the relation gets more serious, the siblings test George's prejudices by suggesting that they had a poor and ignoble background. And, we, and they get the answer from him that suggests that he might be open-minded. In fact, they misjudge how, just how deeply his racial prejudices run. And this might be a big theme of the novel, actually, is how someone may be, seem sympathetic to, to black people and seem flexible on the color line. But when it comes to their personal relationships, they, they harden and their prejudices come out more strongly. Now, well into their courtship, Rena gets a note from her mother suggesting that she's falling ill. Rena returns home. Trion soon follows on some professional excuse. And uh, he also adds to this an excuse to visit some of his relatives who live in the town of Patesville. While in Patesville, there are a couple accidents and misfortune and, and a few acts of fate, especially surrounding a letter that Rena's illiterate mother could not read. Through all this, it's revealed to Trion that Rena, Rowena, as he knows her, had a black mother. Trion is furious that he's been deceived. Um, and that's kind of where I left off. That, that covers the events of the first half of the story. And there was a few other things I talked about. And for more of my details and my comments about that, seen by previous episode, uh, especially entertaining in this first part of the novel is white people play acting at chivalry in a, in a tournament. And Chestnut spends a lot of time on it. And from our perspective, it really seems ridiculous. And I think even from readers at the time may have chuckled at uh, men dressing up as knights and play acting at tournaments while while carrying these old Civil War swords with them. You know, this just kind of this perverse obsession about chivalry, despite the reality of, of slavery and race relations. Now, in the second part, the courtship's over, and we it's really about the ramifications of that. In fact, I think we could have, if, if Chestnut had stopped the novel right here, it would have still been a fairly decent novel about attempting to pass and failing and then having one's heart broken. But Chestnut wants to go a little bit farther with it. And so that's where we're going to pick up. Chapter 17 is called Two Letters. So this chapter is really just two letters, both written to John Warwick. The first is from his mother, and it really explains from a mother's point of view what's happened to Rena. She doesn't fully understand everything. She just knows that her heart's been broken and her relationship with a man named George has been destroyed and that Rena's is going to be staying with her not returning to South Carolina. But she does have a kind of an idea. She's roughly describing the events that lead to the end of her courtship. The letter is written by Frank and Frank's an important background character in this novel. He's Rena's childhood friend and he's the one who really loves her and she, he's like the good man. If, if she would have married him, she would have had a much happier life than rather than pursuing um, richer and more prosperous characters. Now, the second letter in this chapter is from George himself, telling Warwick that, that although his engagement with his sister must end, he will keep a secret. He'll keep the secret and not reveal that John Warwick is, is black. Now, Chesknot concludes that all these things are things of fate, but I think this is a fuzzy line because he often will talk about fate, but then connect back to social relations. And social relations are something that can be altered. Yeah, we may experience them like fate, but there are reasons racial prejudice exists. There's reasons, there's legal structures, there's history, and that these are things that are malleable. So it's kind of a shame that, you know, this has to happen. So I, I think it's not pure fate, even though it's talked about in those terms. But I think this becomes almost a way for white people to justify 
racism because they would talk about the fate of being born black, for instance, or just, uh, you know, that this is how the universe wants it. And it's kind of they washes their hand of it. Fate becomes a way for white people to wash their hands of discrimination and and racial oppression. And here's how he talks about it. He says, this is Chestnut. And now while Rena was recovering from her illness and Trion from his love, and while fate is shuffling the cards for another deal, a few words may be said about the past life of the people who lived in the rear of the flower garden, in the quaint how old house beyond the cedars, and how the lives were mingled with those of the men and women around them and others that were gone. For connected with our kind, we, we must be, if not by our virtues and by our vices, if not by our services, at least by our needs. So he goes from fate and the shuffling of the cards to virtues, vices, services, and needs, which are things that are much more grounded in human autonomy. It's, it, at least it seems to me. Okay, so then he gets into chapter 18, which is kind of the, um, the exposition chapter, where at this point, Chestnut's going to be much more open and direct about race. He does, he stops with the euphemism and he starts talking directly about who these people are, their background, and race becomes something more dominant. So like as soon as the cat's out of the bag in terms of Rena's heritage, then that kind of frees Chestnut to be more, I guess, brutal and direct in how he talks about race. And I think it's really cleverly done by, by the author here. So he starts this by giving a clear, detailed history of Molly Walden and her children. So we know Molly was born free and already had a significant amount of white blood in her heritage. Officially, she would have been a quadroon. She eventually lived a pretty good life because she became a mistress of a rich white man. He fathered her two children, but he died when the children were very young and did not leave a will, although he was thinking about leaving a will, but he died too soon. And since the children were illegitimate and Molly Walden was his wife, there was no legal reason for the estate to give them any money. So the only thing he was able to leave behind to them was the house behind the cedars, which was purchased for her prior to the man's death. And I don't even think we get his name. But then in 1855, when John Walden was 15, he walks into a lawyer's office and tells him that a couple things. First, that he wants to be a lawyer, and second, that he's white. And I think from this point on, for all intents and purposes, John Walden is a white man in the sense of how he presents himself and how, especially when he moves to South Carolina, however see, others see him. The only people who would still see him as black would be people who knew him in his childhood from Patesville. And this is kind of the fate of Rena. Anywhere else in the nation, she could live as a white woman. But it's only in Patesville. It's, it's only where that history is real, where the family connections are real, where that tradition is real, that um, she's racialized. But it's very important that John Walden starts to talk about, about himself as white. He doesn't, when the lawyer talks back to him and says, but, you know, you're black. And he says, no, no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm white. And then the lawyer starts to be interested in this and he studies the law and he decides that South Carolina has more flexible laws governing the color line. And the reason for this is because there's more black people in South Carolina. So the lawyers and the lawmakers in order to prop up the white population uh, created more flexibility. So there someone with one eighth blood would be white under the law and therefore there'd be no legal restrictions on him passing there. The lawyer agrees to let John work in the office and study in his free time. Eventually, John does become a lawyer in South Carolina. And this is like the longest chapter in the book, I think. And he often mixes it with comments on the racial dynamics of the South. And, you know, in some really interesting racial politics, I think he, he does this a little bit more 
thoroughly in the marrow of tradition, the next novel I'll look at. But um, here's an example of, of Chestnut stepping out and really pondering about the color line and how it affects society more broadly outside of these few characters. Um, but anyways, that, that's what we get in chapter 18. It's called Under the Old Regime, but really it goes back to really 1855 in this moment when John Walden decides he's going to be white. So we get all the backstory out of the way. We, we have the story of Rena and her failed courtship out of the way. So now we can plunge towards the climax of our story. In some ways, like I said, the story could have ended now and had just been just as powerful. But really, in, in a handful of ways, the second half of the novel does fall once in a while into melodrama, especially in the last chapter, I would say. And he makes the same mistake, I, would, I think, in The Marrow of Tradition, his next novel. But... He really goes in a really fascinating and different way with it because he's done talking about the color line, really. I mean, there's not much more to say. But if you stop here, the worst that happened is her heart was broke and she goes back to live with her mom and she has a life there. Probably she marries a, a black man and, and that's that. But she does. he doesn't end there. And her ultimate fate, Rena's ultimate fate, actually may be rooted in the color line, but has more to do with with sexuality and her beauty and the how men treat her and become obsessed with her. And really, it's about sexual harassment. All right, chapter 19, God made us all. So John returns to Patesville to check up on his sister. He tries to get her to come back to the South, to South Carolina with him. But Rena, you know, she sees her suffering as evidence for, of divine retribution for her sins. And she basically says, it's, it's because I tried to live as a white woman that this stuff happened to me. John suggests that they try the same plan, but this time instead of going to South Carolina, maybe they can go to the north or to the west. He can take his law degree with him there, and maybe they can be successful. Those are places with less racial prejudice, at least they hope. She decides, however, to stay with her mother. And it's important to keep in mind that passing is easily achieved for men, it seems, in part because of there's less of a burden for caring for elders, perhaps. But also, you know, how many people can really do what John does turn completely turn his back on his family except for a few letters once in a while and a visit every 10 years i think when he first visits his mom it's, it's 10 years and it's for the only purpose is to take his daughter or sister away from her mother so it's he's not a very good son anyways but this is the price he has to pay for for passing so john leaves the story for good at this point he he fails to convince rena to go with them and he never appears again so you know it's in a sense, the first half of the story is about gives equal weight to both John's story and Rena's story. But the second half is all about Rena and what she endures as a young, single, beautiful woman trying to start a professional career. Rena, of course, at the same time commits to her black identity and John commits to his white identity. Chapter 20, Digging in Roots. So this chapter is mostly about uh, Trione moping about his lost love and this is going to be trion's position for the rest of the novel is moping about his lost love pining for rena and doing really creepy things trying to get back with her you know he messed up the relationship but he still wants to be back with her and he it becomes a bigger bigger and bigger obsession to him so he starts to have second thoughts that he thinks well all family trees have a few crooked branches that shouldn't change how i feel about rowena and he goes to live with his mom so he kind of gives up, takes a break, a sabbatical of sorts, and he goes to visit his mother, and he goes to stay in his mother's town. And it's important that 
he goes here for the plot. And we meet a young woman there named Blanche Leary. She's the person that Ty, uh, Trion's mother thinks her son should marry. She's poor, but her family was rich before the war. So once again, we're reminded of the power of history and the Southern mindset about individual value. Someone is valued based on their bloodline and their past, not who they are at this moment. And there's going to be a few more scenes that kind of reinforce this idea. So essentially, heritage matters more than who one is. Chapter 21, A Gilded Opportunity. So Rena, now able to move on with her life, decides to take a job teaching at one of the new schools established for black children. And the man who approaches Rena for the job is named Mr. Jefferson Wayne. And he's immediately kind of put up by the author and by Rena's mother as a possible marriage partner for Rena. And they decide to throw a party for Rena and Wayne to celebrate the job and maybe push their courtship along. Now, one thing to say about... Um, Wayne is unlike Rena and unlike, well, yeah, he, unlike Rena anyways, he speaks with a thick accent, a thick Southern black accent. So Chestnut writes that within that, that accented way he wrote so much of the Conjure Woman and some of his other stories. So anyways, they, they throw this party. Um, now, Rena is more interested in her career and moving on with her life, but other people seem to think that maybe she can marry this Wayne. Uh, a new courtship is really not primarily on her mind at this point in her, her life. And we don't really know that much about M Mr. Wayne, but what we, we learn more as the story goes on, and none of it's very good. He becomes increasingly more suspicious as the story goes on. Chapter 22 is called Imperative Business. So George Trion gets some business he has to do in Patesville. It's a, it's a very small matter that could have been done by mail, but he's becoming a creeper and a stalker. So he decides he's got to do this in person because he's hoping to run into Rena. He's not fallen out of love with her and he wants to see her. But also he's self-delusional because he wants to believe. I mean, he flip-flops a little bit on this. So sometimes he's saying like, well, it doesn't matter if she's got a little bit of black blood. We all have, all her family trees have a little bit of crookedness to them. But then at the same time, she, he really can't believe it. I mean, he's like looking at her picture or something, right? He can, I imagine him just looking at her picture and saying, how can she be black? How can she be black? And here's what he says, quote, if he should discover the chance was one in a thousand that she was white, or if she should find it, if he should find it too hard to leave her. Ah, well, he was a white man, one of his race born to command. He would make her white, no matter beyond the old town. No one beyond the old town would know the difference. If perchance their secret should be disclosed, the world was wide. The man of courage and ambition inspired by love might make a career anywhere. Circumstances made weak men. Strong men made circumstances do their bidding. He would not let his darling die of grief, whatever the price must be paid for her salvation, end quote. And the, even more, like he's deluded also in this idea that he's going to be the savior. He's going to be the, the chivalrous knight rescuing her from heartbreak. When in fact, Rena's pretty much over him by this point. It's all Trion who continues to pine for her. So then chapter 23, and it, it kind of joins with chapter 24. These are both that party that was arranged for Rena and Wayne. One thing we learn is that Wayne has some color prejudice that he did not, that's not revealed earlier. He doesn't invite Frank to the party. And the reason being is he's darker skinned. Wayne is, is biracial himself. So, but he also has a very suspicious look and a suspicious background. He claims to be a widower. And he's always kind of gazing at Rena and, and undressing her with his eyes. Quote, 
When Rena was in the room, he had eyes for her only. But when she was absent, he fixed his attention mainly upon he fixed his attention mainly on Wayne. With jealous clairvoyance, he observed that Wayne's eyes followed Rena when she left the room and lit up when she returned. Frank had heard that Rena was going away with the man, and he watched Wayne closely, liking him less the longer he looked at him. To fancy to his fancy, Wayne's style and skill were affectionate. His good nature, mere hypocrisy, and his glance at Rena, the eye of a hawk upon his quarry. He had heard that Wayne was unmarried. And he could not see how, this being so, he could help wishing Rena for a wife. Frank would have been content to see her marry a white man who would have raised her to a plane worthy of her merits. End quote. Now that's all Frank's um, observing of it. But we see right there from Frank's point of view that he sees that there's something suspicious about Wayne and that he's now he's kind of gazing at, at Rena. He can't get her, can't stop looking at her. Chapter 24 is called Swing Your Partners. And... This is just the party continuing, but now we get it from Trion's point of view. He's arrived in Patesville just in time to see the party. He looks into the party and sees Rena having a splendid time, a good time. So Trion just mopes during the rest of his visit in Patesville. But he also loses all hope that she may be really secretly somehow by some ma magical circumstance of genealogy really white. He starts to have more delusions about maybe marrying Rena and keeping her secret. But he's really going around the bend here and just becoming really, really creepy. So the what we have here are two weird men kind of obsessing about this girl and stalking her and doing weird things to try to get her to, to love him and, and having delusions that she like she she shares these feelings with the men. So she's between these two creepy men. That, that's where the story goes. And it's, it, that's why I say it becomes less a story really about, about the color line and really more a story about sexual harassment. Now, Rina does hesitate a little bit to leave her mother for this new job, but eventually she's her mother convinces her to go. So she goes. She goes off to start this job, and she'll, she has to go with Mr. Wayne. So first, in chapter 25, balance all, Wayne takes Rena to her teacher's examination. She passes those, and so they go to this other town. This town happens to be the same town where, where Trion's mother lives. So Trion's in the town, Wayne's in the town, Rena's in the town, and so is Blanche Leary and Trion's mother. So all these characters are in the same town. They don't all know it yet. I don't think anyone knows all these connections yet, but they're all, everything's set up for the climax of the novel. So, but when Rita goes to take the teacher's exam, we get some of the people there, their internal monologue, where we learn that Wayne really has a bad reputation. Um, one man says, this was, I think, the test giver. What a pity that that woman should be a blank. If she were anything to me, though I should hate to trust her anywhere near that saddle-colored scoundrel, he's thoroughly bad lot and will bear watching. Quote. So that, that's kind of internal monologue of one of the characters, but he, that character knows that Wayne is, is trouble. But then she begins her work as a teacher. Okay, chapter 26, the schoolhouse, the schoolhouse in the woods. So this is sometime later. I don't know, it's really clear, probably a few months. Trion is pursuing his relationship with Blanche Leary, but Blanche knows that his heart was someone else and Trion is just kind of a jerk to her and he's he's totally still obsessed with, with Rena. They're riding out one day and come across a schoolhouse where Rena's teaching. They, well, I guess it's Blanche sees her 
and notices that she's very light-skinned. She talks to one of the students named Plato, and he confirms that the teacher is black, not white, and this kind of surprises Rena. Now, Trion doesn't see her, though, only Leary. So this is comparable to a situation in the first half of the novel in a doctor's office where Rena comes in and people talk about her, but Trion doesn't see her, so it doesn't make the connection right away. So it's the same kind of, the same kind of thing. Chapter 27, An Interesting Acquaintance. And now the story gets a little bit uh, even more complicated with the characters overlapping and meeting each other. So a few days later, Mrs. Trion, who's heard about this light-skinned teacher, visits Rena and asks her if she could help her help support the school in various ways. So she wants to kind of do some charity for the local black people. And I guess she heard about this from, from Blanche. Rena explains that she's staying with, with this Mr. Wayne, boarding with him, and Mrs. Trion warns her that he was abusive to his last wife. He says... She's a good, oh, Miss Nancy. That was the name of, oh, no, so this is where they're staying. They live in the old Campbell place, she said. So she's a good enough woman, talking about the woman who owns the house. But we don't think much of her son, Jeff. He married my Amanda after the war. She used to belong to me and ought to have known better. He abused her most shamefully and had to be threatened with the law. He left her a year or so ago and went away. I hadn't seen her lately. Well, goodbye, my child. I'm coming to your exhibition. If you ever pass my house, come in and see me. So she gives a direct warning that Wayne is an abusive husband and that he actually abused his former wife. And it's not even clear he divorced, that she just left him. So in chapter 28, it's called The Lost Knife. So Rena is continuing her work in the school, but she tries to avoid these amorous advances of Wayne, largely by keeping students, being, always being accompanied by students whenever she's with Wayne. But he is getting progressively creepier as, as the story goes on. Look, listen to this. He has jocularly offered to come and whip the children for her, and he found it convenient to drop in occasionally, ostensibly to see what progress the work was making. Ugh. So it's a lot of stuff like that. Um, and then eventually he he uses a knife, a lost knife. He says, I lost my knife, and he sends the child off to look for the knife, and this is an excuse for him to be alone with Rena, and then he sexually assaults her, tries to kiss her, Rena is, of course, terrified of his behavior and, you know, is totally freaked out by this. And it's a fairly, I think, accurate description of, of what sexual harassment can do and just how terrifying it can be and how devastating it can be to one's work life and career. Um, now, in the same chapter, she learns. I don't think it's explained how she learns. Chestnut just throws it in there that she also learned this, but that Trion is living in the same town with her now. And so she has this fear that she'll run into him. So we got these two creepers hanging around her and there's not much she can do do she's alone she doesn't have family support networks here so what to do and so in chapter 29 we learn trion is going was really mad with his now unrequited love for rena and he pays a student plato 50 cents if he'll deliver a letter to rena the letter is simply a desperate effort to win her back he says he wants to meet her just as friends but rena writes back you know saying whatever get out of my life we're done leave me alone in chapter 30, it's called An Unusual Honor. And so Rena is now between these two sexual harassers. And she's trying to find a way to just get out of town. She doesn't even, you know, how to get out of her old job, how to find a new job, maybe get back to Patesville. 
something. And meanwhile, George Trion is still trying to bribe Plato to arrange a meeting with Rena. And then he actually talks Plato, bribes him, I should say, bribes Plato into leading Rena to a specific place where he will bump into her. And so, again, it's like really uh, odious behavior by, by Trion here. I don't wonder if people at the time read this as just like, this is what love struck people do, but it's not. This is really bizarre, creepy behavior. Um, chapter 31, uh, In Deep Waters. So the plan is put into motion. Walking down the road, she finds herself literally between Trione and Wayne. So she runs into the woods. She spends some time in the woods and she passes out. She falls unconscious and she gets up later and she walks home. But she, now she's incredibly ill and sick. She, she's taken to a sick bed. We don't know it yet, but she was, she was bitten by a snake when she was in the woods. She fell unconscious. She woke up later and she's dying of a snake bite. Chapter 32, The Power of Love. Trione is not going to give up so easily. His new plan is to stalk, stalk, um, Rena, follow her back to Patesville if necessary after the semester ends. He does not know that she is sick and dying, though, um, he, so he's off kind of looking for his love. Trion gets the news about how she's taken ill and how she has left her sickbed and vanished. So now he's out to look for this sick, uh, delusional woman who's kind of crazy with illness and, and, and left her sickbed and vanished. He goes looking for her and he finds a poor, light-skinned, drunk woman. It's not Rena, though, but it's just a poor, white, drunk. And it's really a fascinating moment for me where he's showing again the color line. He mistakes a poor white for for Rena. And I don't know if he just can't see beyond color. So he's following this woman that he heard about. So he followed the woman for several hours, each mile of the distance taking him farther away from Patesville. From time to time, he heard of the woman. He heard of the woman. Towards nightfall, he had found her. She was white enough with the shallowness of the poor of the Sandhill poor white. She was still young, perhaps, but poverty and a hard life made her look older than she ought. She was not fair, and she was not Rena. When Trion came up to her, she was sitting on the doorstep of a miserable cabin and held in her hand a bottle, the contents of which had never paid any revenue tax. She had walked 20 miles a day and had beguiled the tedium of the journey by occasional potations, which probably accounted for the incoherency of speech which several of those who met her have observed. When Trion drew near her, she tendered him a bottle with tipsy cordiality. He turned in disgust and retraced his steps to the Patesville Road, which he did not reach until nightfall. As it was too dark to prosecute the search with any chance of success, he secured lodgings for the night. End quote. So I guess he was just like asking around for a white woman wandering the streets. And so he got directed to this, this drunk woman rather than the one he, the woman he was actually looking for. So, um, I mean... Th th did he just describe her as, as a white woman walking around? I mean, it, it seems his capacity to describe this woman doesn't go much farther than, than skin color. And then we get to the final chapter of the book, chapter 33, A Mule in the Cart. So it's finally, it's Frank Fowler, of course, who finds Rena in the end. She's dying of the snake bite. Eventually, Trione finds them, but not before Rena dies after learning that Frank was the one who truly loved her all along. But to the end, Trion is justifying himself through his love for this woman and justifying all his, his actions and his behavior. So that's the novel, The House Behind the Cedars. It's, like I said, it's a, it's a novel really about the color line. And I, I talked about some of the themes in the first 
episode on this where I talked about whiteness and professionalism, the importance of of marriage to women and at the, of that social status and, and how there are so few social roles for women outside of marriage. Rena finds one through teaching, but for most women, marriage was the expected um, outcome of them reaching adulthood. We have a lot here on the lost cause and just in general, the legacy of the Civil War, the legacy of slavery, the delusions of the white South over the experience of slavery, and of course the color line. But in the second part of the novel, we can really add to this sexual harassment being a major theme and that just dominates the last quarter of the novel where you feel and chestnut does it so well it's it's actually one of the best descriptions i've seen in american literature from this time describing this and you actually feel just how creepy these men are and how awkward and how threatened rena feels in her workplace and there's even that scene where he talks about this lost knife so now there's that added threat that wayne carries a knife with him and then he's kind of pushing for, uh, you know, contact with, with Rena. And it's actually that which drives her to desperation and drives her into the woods. It's not the color line that does that. She's already come to terms with who she is and what her place in Southern society is going to be. It's really creepy men in the end who, who, who get her killed and, and push her into the woods, literally, where she's, where she's bit and, and, and she dies from. I suppose we could say that chestnut wants her to be with frank frank's the good guy frank's the one who loved her from the beginning and cared for her and kept an eye on her even when she went to south carolina um and he's the non-creepy one right he, he doesn't yeah he likes her and he keeps an eye on her but he's not doing it in the same kind of way that these other two men do so um i guess that's it for the house behind the cedars um i think it's really my recommendation for this would be that it's really worth reading now in the era of the Me Too movement with a new set of eyes because it's, it's something when I first read it, I didn't notice that how weird Wayne and Trion are. But when it's, it's a novel, when I came back to it I, and reread it, it's like, wow, this is, this is really a novel about sexual harassment as much as anything else. It's, it's a lot deeper than I first thought. So um, that'll do it for The House Behind the Cedars. In my next two episodes, I'll be looking at Chestnut's follow-up novel to... The House Behind the Cedars called The Marrow of Tradition, which is about the Wilmington race riot of 1898. Of course, it's set in a fictionalized town, but it's a, it's a very loose fictionalization of the events surrounding that race riot. And then it's at the same time a very personal story about a family, again, divided by the color line and, and burdened by the legacy of slavery, and especially the, the sexual legacy of, of slavery. So I'll look forward to giving you my thoughts on that over, over a couple episodes as we start to, to reach the end of this series on, on Charles Chestnut. So thank you so much for li listening. If you have any, your own comments about Charles Chestnut or the House Behind the Cedars, please leave them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, uh, I'll be back for the Marrow of Tradition. Yay!